Hello, my name is Jim. This is my podcast, The Bloody Vegans. You're very welcome to it. Each week, I'll be travelling ever deeper into the world of veganism, discovering along the way a multitude of viewpoints from the political and ethical to the practical. I'll be doing this through a series of conversations, each aiming to further illuminate my understanding and hopefully yours of all things plant-centric. And this week, is no different. Before we get into the episode at hand, I should tell you this episode of the Bloody Vegans podcast is brought to you by Veg One, the vitamin and mineral supplement designed by the good folks over at the Vegan Society for all of you vegans out there. Uh, it was launched back in 2005 and in 2021, uh, it got a new package, a plastic free one, no less, which you can reuse endlessly in the home for all manner of different things. Isn't that glorious? Um, it provides you all the nutritional support you'd expect from a multivitamin designed by the vegan society uh, in fact you get the eu nutrient reference values the daily amounts if you like uh, of these vitamins uh, b12 d3 iodine selenium b2 b6 and folic acid uh, all for the princely sum of 12 pounds 70 for a six month supply uh, it's chewable uh, you take it once a day and it comes in two amazing flavours. You've got orange or blackcurrant. I'm firmly in the Team Orange camp. So there you go. This episode brought to you by Veg One from the Vegan Society. In this week's episode, I'm joined by Raydel Hernandez. He's the author of It's Delicious, It's Vegan, It's Cuban, a cookbook for folks who want to start out in the world of Cuban cooking, but want to do so in a vegan way, in a plant-based way, um, and you can do so with this amazing resource that he's put together. He has pulled together um, generations of recipes from his family, from his traditional Cuban uh, heritage uh, into this book, all with accompanying stories about how he came about the recipe and then how he how he went about the process of veganizing it, if you like. So it's a wonderful resource. I, I thoroughly recommend. Um, and Raydell's story is is a brilliant one too. Really, really um, inspiring. So uh, let's get into it, shall we? Without further ado, here is a conversation between me and the author of It's Delicious, It's Vegan, It's Cuban, Raydell Hernandez. I, I want to say probably about 12 years ago, um, I uh, started having episodes of gout. I don't know if, do you know, yeah. you know what gout is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's an acute arthritis in your toe. And uh, I was getting attacks pretty frequently, and I never realized that it was actually something, that I, there was actually an ailment. I thought I had injured myself. Right. Because at that time, I was doing a lot of exercise, I was wrestling, I was running a lot, and I figured I stubbed my toe in a competition or something. And uh, the pain just got stronger and bigger and stronger and longer. And at one point I made, a, I made a, a, an appointment with my doctor. But here in the States, when you make an appointment with your doctor, you have to wait like two weeks to see him. So right. we have all these immediate care facilities sprinkled all over the towns. So I went to one of these urgent care places and I met a doctor that changed my life. Um, she, and you know what, and the, the irony of it is, I don't remember her name. I can see her face, <laughs> I can see every detail of her face, but I can't remember her name. And uh, I went there and I showed her my toe and she, uh, and I told her I was in excruciating pain because I don't know if you've ever had gout. Gout is, uh, it's intense. It's like having a, 
a mechanical bulldog like bite your foot and like Ooh. hold on to it for hours. It's agonizing and it there is no like soft beginning. It's immediate pain until it ends. Right. <laughs> and it ends like <laughs> hours later. Jeez. Um so anyway, I went to the doctor and she took one look at my foot and uh she said, "Look, you know, I can I'm not going to give you a blood test. I can tell that you have gout." Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I can I've seen it so much that it's obvious to me that you have gout. And she said something to me that no doctor ever said to me before or since. Uh, she's told me, she said, look, this is, um, I can give you medicine that will solve your gout problem. It'll take away your symptoms. You won't feel anything. But it's not treating the underlying condition. And the underlying condition was heart disease. Mm. Uh, so she said to me that there's uh, three sister ailments that are genetically connected that you get from your parents. Uh, she said, gout is one of them, uh, kidney stones, and prostate issues, if you're a male, mm. obviously. Mm. And what's funny is my father suffered from his prostate all his life. I had already passed a kidney stone, and now I had gout. Mm. So I was like, okay, I have these canary, canaries in a coal mine, so to speak, symptoms of heart disease. And uh, she said, look, you know, if you don't change the way you are living... You're going to have to consider at some point the vegan lifestyle or a vegetarian lifestyle because this isn't going to go away. It's a genetic, I think she used the word trigger. It's almost like your body is letting you know that what you're doing to it food-wise is not working out for it. And uh, that's how I got into it. And I didn't just take her word for it. I began to research and... You know, I saw in your bio that you saw a documentary that changed your life, which was, mm. I think, Cow Conspiracy or whatever. That's, that, yeah. uh, I've seen that one, too. Uh, the one that I saw that really really put it all into focus was um, Forks Over Knives. Mm. I don't know if you've seen that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. That one really, as soon as I, like, when I spoke to her and then I saw that documentary, it kind of all became very obvious to me mm. that I was doing this to myself. Um, so, you know, I'm not the kind of person that ignores reality. I mean, you know, I like to confront it. I think that's the better way to do it. I mean, I don't want to ignore an illness and then find out later, 10 years later, that it's too late to do anything. Yeah. So I began to, you know, research and figure out, you know, what I had to do and what was real, what wasn't real. And I actually reached out to a lot of those doctors and researchers in that documentary. I emailed them for their research reports and I wanted to read it all, even though I didn't understand all of the medical statistics. But you get a gist of what's going on, and it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's, I was shocked to know 12 years ago that this is all known science. Like, mm. they know that all these foods do this to us. And they allow it because, you know, it's just easier to allow people, I guess, to eat whatever they want and deal with the consequences later. Um, but that was how, how I got into it. I got into it for my health, and uh, really the... The most miraculous thing to me was as soon as I committed to it, which wasn't that hard. The hard part is just accepting that you have to like move away from the things that you're comfortable with. Yeah. But as soon as you do it and you start doing it, I, within 30 days, everything was gone. The gout was gone. The cholesterol was gone. Blood pressure came down. Lost a bunch of weight. And I was eating twice as much as I used to eat, right. which was kind of amazing, right? And that's how I got into it. And then I just started refining it. Um, My biggest issue was the food that I was um, eating. I couldn't find anything that was specific to my culture. Like there there are no Cuban 
vegan cookbooks, uh, especially when I was looking for them 12 years ago. So I experimented with Indian food because there's a lot of vegetarian mm. vegan meals and in Indian food and, you know, all the kale, you know, slash shake cookbooks that are out there. And I couldn't find anything that that I liked, really. I mean, it, for me, food is a very important thing. I mean, I'm, I'm Cuban and Hispanic people in general have a connection to food that I think lots of people don't have. I mean, Italians have it. Right, because they live around their pastas and it's a big deal to, mm. to eat in, in Italy. It's the same thing with Cubans. And that was where I started to realize that I'm going to have to do this myself because there is, no, there is no playbook. There's no book of food that comes from my culture that's vegan. And that's how I kind of fell into it. I just started writing these recipes that I already had. I had my grandmother's recipes from Cuba. You know, these are all delicious recipes that involve the worst combinations possible. <laughs> you know, lard and pork and beef and all these things. And I was like, you know, I, I don't want to walk away from this because I have memories that are tied to all this food and holidays rotate around these foods. And, you know, I have a big family. We're all Cuban. It's kind of hard to separate yourself from that. So I just decided to figure out a way to make that food better, uh, healthier rather, you know, vegan, vegetarian. And... uh that's how I got here. Yeah, what an incredible journey. How, how much had to change? Going back to that point where you spoke to that doctor and you, you walked away from that doctor's office, you started doing your research. How, how much had to change in your in your lifestyle at that point? What did a, a kind of a typical day look like? Was it kind of meat, meat regularly, three times a day? What, what, what was the sort of the... Oh, I had animal products in my diet from morning till nighttime. Hmm. You don't realize it until you start breaking it down, like coffee with milk, a cream cream cheese and a bagel. That's all animal products. You know, that, hmm. those are all things that I was accustomed to in the morning. Lunch, lunch was always a mini dinner uh, that I would bring to, to work with me, which was always some type of meat product, whether it was chicken or, you know, fish was the healthy day. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's all the same, you know, uh, at night. It was the same, I mean, more of the same. Ham, pork, chicken, fried chicken, any any form of chicken. Because, uh, you know, over here, I can't, I don't know about the UK, but over here, everyone thinks that chicken is much more healthy than yeah. red meat or, Similar. or fish. <laughs> and they don't realize that it's all basically the same. I didn't realize that either until I started realize, until I started actually trying and realizing that, well, if I eat fish, I still have high cholesterol somehow. <laughs> so I had to start taking that out and... At the end of the day, I, I had to just f stop everything that I was doing and, uh, and re-educate myself and re-educate my palate on uh, how to eat foods and prepare foods that I would like and my family would like that was vegan. And I would say the first few months, it's hard because, you know, you're not really sure. And, and back then, you know, 12 years ago wasn't that long ago, but... There was no meat products. There was no like mm -hmm. uh, vegan meat products. Rather, there was no Impossible Burger. There was none of those things that you can substitute. So, I had to figure out, you know, from from the ground up how to how to cook these things, how to make seitan, how, what kind of right. soy products are out there that can you know imitate chicken or whatever. Um, and then you know you start figuring it out, and then you start to realize the thing that I realized, which I think. If most people understood, they'd all be vegetarian or, or vegan. It, the, the protein that you're eating, the, the animal product, doesn't taste like anything. 
It tastes like what you season it to be, right? It's the rosemaries, the oreganos, the salt and pepper. All that is the flavor that you taste. And you can do that with any, you know, um, plant-based protein. Now, I'm not going to tell you it comes out exactly the same because it's not the same thing, but it's close enough not to care. Mm. And uh, that's what I discovered. And I started making these traditional Cuban recipes for my family. I experimented on them first. I have an aunt on my father's side that's like the authority on Cuban cooking. So <laughs> anytime that I would create something, I'd be like, why don't you try this and see if you like it? Right. And, uh, it's the seal you know, of approval. She was honest. I mean, some things she thought were right on on target and some things she was like, ah, it's off a little bit. You got to figure out a way to make it taste this way. And little by little, massaging the recipes and the proportions, I think I came pretty close to... Uh, an authentic, you know, traditional cookbook that has no meat in it, no animal products. Yeah. T- tell me a little bit about Cuban cooking, kind of growing up. You mentioned, you know, obviously food being such a, uh, a central hub to the family, you know, this important kind of role that it played. What What is it, what is kind of traditional uh, Cuban food that you kind of grew up eating? What does it consist of? T- t- give us a couple of, c- couple of examples of the dishes. Oh, well, there's there's a lot, and all of it's really good. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but, you know, Cuban <laughs> cooking is, I think it's been lost uh, to an extent because all the people from that island have moved away, and right. whatever's left isn't close to what used to be there. So Cuban cooking is, is a, it's a collection of different cultures. Um, it's the, it's part Span, Spanish from Spain, okay, but... Mm. And those were the colonizers that came and, and colonized Cuba. Now, those Spanish folks that came from Europe to Cuba had Arabic influence in their food. Right. From when the Moors took over, you know, up to southern Spain, right? They took most of Europe and the Mediterranean there. So there's the influence of that in the cooking. And then there's, of course, Cuba was central to the triangular trade, if you remember your history, right? With the slaves and the sugarcane and everything. Yeah. So we have the influence of the black slaves. And there was an enormous Chinese population that came to Cuba as well to, you know, to work back during all that time. So you had the influences of the Spaniards from Europe, the slaves that worked in, in Cuba and the Chinese. And it all comes together to make this really unique flavor that I don't think you really see too, too much anywhere uh, anymore. So a typical dish, something as simple as meat and potatoes which is an actual dish, is really an amazing recipe. It comes out, it's far beyond meat and potatoes. I mean, there's wine in it, there's peppers, there's what's called sofrito, which is the, 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 the foundation of the dish. And then everything comes together, it boils into this beautiful sauce with meat and potatoes in it. And I don't know if you remember, um, Ernest Hemingway kind of immortalized uh, that, that dish in his book, The Old Man of the Sea. Because mm. when the old man came off of his fishing trip, the first thing he asked for was a plate of meat of uh, carne con papas, which is meat and potatoes. So for us, all these dishes, they kind of connect all Cubans together. I mean, we all eat mm. the same thing. And what's interesting is every family has a, a different twist to how they do things. Right. So you get variations of meat and potatoes. You get variations of, you know, um, ropa vieja, which is another meat dish, variations of rice and beans. When I say rice and beans to Americans here, they, they don't realize that I'm talking about 
really sophisticated recipes to make that taste like something else. They just think it's beans with rice, <laughs> and that's not it at all. Same thing with uh, arroz con pollo, rice with chicken. I mean, I say that's one of my favorite dishes. Arroz con pollo is far beyond rice with chicken. You know, there's beer mm. in it, there's garlic, there's saffron, there's all these ingredients that come together to make this beautiful mix of food that you haven't had. If, if you don't, if you've never tried Cuban food, you've, you've never had these dishes. And I'm telling you, some of them are very delicate, some of them are very hearty. They're consistently delicious. Uh, Cuban food is, is kind of a sauce-based kind of food. Right. So the meat that you use doesn't really matter. Like there are no good cuts of beef in Cuban cooking. There's whatever, there's the cheapest thing you can buy, you make mm. it soft, and then you mix it with delicious sauce and you serve it with rice. That's usually how it all works. And that actually comes from the Chinese influence that is in the food. Because Chinese mm. food is similar. It's very saucy food and there's no emphasis on the actual cuts of meat. It's just meat in the sauce with rice. It's very similar to Cuban food. Um, I mean, obviously distinctly different in taste, but I guess in, in mechanics is what I'm referring to. Um, and all these things mean, mean different things to Cuban people. Um, I would say the major meals, like Christmas is usually celebrated on the 24th. Most Latin people celebrate right. Christmas on the 24th. And that's a giant meal that every Cuban family, well, I shouldn't say every Cuban family, I would say most Cuban families have. It's usually roast pork, rice and beans, uh, a potato dish that, that's well, not potato, it's called yuca. Uh, it's a root vegetable, similar to potato. You know, and, and what is, I don't know if it's unique to Cubans, but it used to, what used to happen in my household was my grandmother's family was so big that she had all these sisters that were pretty amazing cooks too. So everybody brought what they made really well. And then you had this enormous feast of food that was amazing. Like, it was so amazing. And I, and I don't want to come across as like, some kind of, like, I'm better than other people because of our food. But it was so amazing. Like, when I went to a friend's house as a teenager and I saw what they had, like, for dinner, I would be like, this is impossible. This can't be dinner because dinner is much better than this in my house, you know? But those are the, like, those are the things that you start to realize when you're from a different culture that has that kind of... Uh, that kind of emphasis, that priority on food. You, you see the difference. I'm sure Italian people see it too. I'm sure an Italian mm. that goes over to somebody else's house that eats food out of, you know, like, and I'm not knocking it, if that's what you can do. If you have frozen dinners at your house and that's how you live, that's your thing. But I'm sure that Italian people that come from that kind of culture, you, you, you feed them a box dinner and they'll be like, this is kind of different than what I grew up with, you know? <laughs> And that's kind of the importance. I mean, that's how it all ties us together. And I, I think a lot of it has to do, I think the importance of food for us, and I can't speak for everybody, but I, I can speak for the Cubans, the households that I know. You know, a lot of things were lost when Castro took over and, mm. and put Cuba under communist rule. And a lot of those memories of Cuba that they had in their mind, a lot of it rotated around the food and the festivals and everything. And I think that when, you, when they brought that back from Cuba to, in my case, to, to New York, it was very important for the family to, to keep that connection to the island. Mm. And I think that's shared amongst Cuban families. I, I, you know, I, I've had conversations with other Cuban people, 
And it's the same thing. Like they all have a special dish. They all have a special celebration. And all of it. I mean, it's, it's, you never hear of any, I never hear of any Cuban family catering, you know, calling a caterer to make different <laughs> food for a party. It's Cuban food. That's it. Um, and that's, that's the background I come from. And, and you know, I'm, I'm happy about it because it's a, it's, a, it's a culture of family. Like we all, mm. you know, sat around the dinner table together at the same hour, no matter what. Yeah. I mean, you had to come in and eat together whether you wanted to or not. There was no hours of video game playing. There was no, at six o'clock is when everyone sat down and everyone and my grandmother would make this meal. Now I understand that not everybody has a grandmother, a full-time grandmother that cooks everything, <laughs> but that's what I had yeah. and I appreciate it and I want to emulate that with my family. Um, and that's, I mean, everyone has their own culture, right? I mean, I'm sure you have traditions that you keep that are important. Um, I'm mm. sure English people have a deep culture of of food and music and all the things that tie you guys together, it's very similar in our culture. I think, you know, talking about that, whilst there are many cultural things, you know, from from my experience, I come from a uh, part English, part Indian background. And so some of the some of what you're talking about there, I absolutely relate to that kind of um, the the matriarch grandmother kind of figure cooking for the whole family. My mum's many brothers and sisters bringing over dishes. You know, it really brought back as you were talking about it. Then brought back memories of um, of being young and going to my 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 grandmother's house. Um, but but I do notice kind of over the course of time as modern cultures kind of kicked in, as some of that has been has been eroded. Perhaps it happens a bit less frequently, that kind of thing. You know, life, people, life getting in the way, life getting busier. What, what's your experience like in kind of the families that you know, the kind of Cuban communities? Is that those traditions, are they still quite alive there? They are. The timing is off, though. That's what it is. So mm. since everybody works so much here in the United States, um, you know, even though you may want to have dinner at six, doesn't always happen at six. Yeah. In my house, dinner's always made, and whenever you show up to eat it, you, you eat it. I mean, right. so it's understood that in my house, like my, my oldest son, he, he's from a previous marriage, so we're not, his mother and I are divorced. Mm. But, you know, he comes to my house, and his mother is, is not Cuban, so she's of a different culture. So when he comes over to my house to visit, he's like, you know, when I come to your house, there's always food in the refrigerator. And that's because I, I cook all the time because I think yeah. it's important to have a refrigerator full of food. And not just food that, you know, I mean, anyone can buy a roasted chicken at the supermarket mm. and, and prepared foods. To me, that's, that's okay. That's better than nothing. But I think it's more important when, you know, someone dedicates themselves to taking care of the family. That's how I feel when I cook. I mm. feel like I'm trying to do the best possible thing I can to show my children that it's important to learn how to cook for many reasons. It's important to learn how to cook because it's economically better. Mm. You can control the ingredients that you put in there. You can cook it on the spot. You're not worried about it being frozen or other people handling it. I mean, all these things matter. And when you come to my house, the pots of food that are in the refrigerator are for everybody. So you just come in. If you have a, if you bring, like my son will come over with a, a buddy of his, Occasion on the weekends, and his buddy is amazed at all the food that's in the refrigerator <laughs> as well. And you know, they they feast. I mean, I you know, I come out at, I go to bed probably about eleven. These kids are up until three in the morning playing video games. <laughs> and if I come out into the living room at three in the morning, they'll be sitting there eating 
whatever's left of arroz con pollo <laughs> or whatever's there. I mean, they just devour it. And it makes me happy because it, you know, it's kind of like the security of the security of youth. Like when you're a kid, yeah. everything is taken care of for you. You know, there's nothing you have to worry about. And I think food is part of that. I think mm. it's sad that there are families out there that don't have refrigerators full of food. I think it's a, I think it makes you grow up different. And I, I think yeah. that it's valuable. I think it's something that people should do. People should practice because it makes your family stronger. It makes your marriage stronger. It makes mm. your bond with your kids stronger. And all of those aren't bad things. And mm. it's as simple as just making a, a pot of rice and beans. This episode of the Bloody Vegans podcast is brought to you by Veg One and the good folks are over at the Vegan Society. Veg One is the multivitamin and mineral supplement designed by vegans for vegans. It was introduced back in 2005, updated in 2021 with an incredible new plastic-free package and contains all of those key vitamins and minerals that everyone will tell you when you transition into a plant-based diet into a vegan lifestyle that you need to think about and you absolutely do. Uh, so What's in there? You've got uh, B2, B6, B12, D3, iodine, selenium, and folic acid. So all of those kind of key ones you need to consider when you're starting out or perhaps you've been here for some time. Uh, and it's all in a convenient once a day chewable form, uh, which, is, which is super helpful, right? It's just £12.70 for six months worth. Um, and they come in two amazing flavors. You've got orange and you've also got blackcurrant. Orange is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, I'm definitely team orange when it comes to veg one. Uh, so if you'd like to know more and you're interested in picking up your six-month supply, head over to theveganSociety.com, uh, search for veg one, uh, and you can pick up some right there, delivered straight to your door. Enjoy the episode. I'm, I'm fascinated by the almost the... You coming back home to your your family, who you know steeped in all of this tradition and culture around food, and you saying to them, "I'm going vegan." What what was that moment like? How supportive was everybody? Was everybody a bit perplexed? Were they used to the idea of veganism? Where where was everybody at? <laughs> that was uh, that's a testament to to my diligence because it was not well received. The only one that the only one that turned vegan with me was my wife, um, because she knew that it was important to me. But I don't think that she was enthusiastic about it. And it's certainly in the <laughs> beginning, when we were still trying to figure out what to eat. And that's the other problem. There, there's so many, so many options out there that you don't know what to do. So mm. I started experimenting with Indian food. It's funny you mentioned that because I was thinking when you said that. I'm yeah. like, I had a lot of Indian food trying to figure out if I really like Indian food that much for the rest of my life. You know. <laughs> and we were we were doing this, and uh, then I decided to take out my grandmother's recipes, and I decided to see what I can make. And the first recipes that I made didn't have any of this, um, you know, processed vegan meat in it. Um, it had basically right. vegetables, whatever I can substitute for the meat, what I thought would work. Um, and I remember I made it. The first dish I made, I made for my aunt. And uh, my aunt, I'm, she's the sister of my father, so she's the only aunt I have on that side of the family. And um, and she's, you know, she's a wonderful lady. And I love her to pieces, but she is not, she doesn't hold back. Like, if something's not good, she'll tell you. <laughs> and that's the reason why, I, you know, I did that. So the first few ones that I made was not well received. 
Um, and then I made one thing, a, a dish called picadillo. Picadillo is a, is like a ground beef, okay? And it's made in a sauce, right. and it's 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 really delicious. Um, but what I did was I substituted the ground beef uh, for cauliflower. I granulated cauliflower and I okay. browned it. So when I made it, it didn't look like it was cauliflower. It looked like it was meat. And she ate it, and her her eyes lit up, and she said, well, "I thought you were going to make me something vegan." I said, "Well, I did. This is cauliflower." Mm. And right there, I knew that I was onto something because she liked it. Now, my father, my father's the kind of guy that doesn't give a compliment easy. He's not a mean person. He's just not that kind of guy. Like, he's, he's more the kind of guy that'll make a joke at your expense. Hopefully, you'll laugh at the joke with him. That's the kind of person he is. So when I made him right. my first uh, version of carne con papas, which is what, it's one of his favorite dishes, um, I made it for him using zucchini. And I took a chance with the zucchini because I wasn't really, sh like, I didn't have a handle on zucchini, right? So <laughs> I made this carne con papas and I substituted the meat with zucchini. And I told him, I said, look, this has no meat in it. So, you know, fire away. If you don't like something, let me know. I want to know exactly what you think. And uh, he was eating it and he was eating it, you know, with... Uh, with some zest, he was he was enjoying it, mm -hmm. and he, he looked at me. He said, "You know, you can sell this," and I was like, "Oh, get out of here!" And you know that that was a big compliment coming from my father because this is a hardcore eighty-year-old traditional Cuban that still smokes two packs a day. He still thinks he's in Cuba riding horses. I mean, this is <laughs> that's how traditional he is, and mm. he liked it. So I was like, okay. So I have the ability here to successfully change my diet. And uh, that's what I did. I just started picking recipes that I thought I could imitate. And um, now I cook for them on the weekends. Every weekend, not every weekend, I'd say probably once a month my aunt comes over. Now she, now that's the funny thing. She was so inspired by what I was doing that she became vegan. And this is like a... wow. 64-year-old woman at the time. She'd kill me if she knew I was telling her age publicly like this. <laughs> but you know, Hopefully she's not a podcast listener. Yeah, just edit that part out. <laughs> so, and I remember, I remember her telling me that she was, um, she was on cholesterol medicine and the cholesterol medicine has side effects that she wasn't enjoying. They were hurting her joints. She was always uncomfortable. And I said, look, I'm working on this. Yeah, I've already, you've already had a couple of recipes. She's an amazing cook herself. So why don't you try? Just take it out of your diet and see what happens. And, you know, the same thing happened to her. Within 30 days, her cholesterol dropped 100 points. She was so happy. Wow. She, but she didn't know. See, that's, that's the thing. People don't know. You, you, you think that cholesterol, like she always thought, she was under the impression that she just... You know, she's just the kind of person that has high cholesterol. She never realized mm. that it was what she's putting in her mouth. And the minute she took it away, and the minute she realized that she didn't need to take that medicine anymore because her cholesterol just dropped because she wasn't consuming it anymore, she was the happiest person in the world. I mean, when she goes to the doctor now, she calls me up and she's like, for like the tenth time now, I can't believe the doctor tells me that my cholesterol is fine. And every single time the doctor asks her, are you... <laughs> taking too much of the medicine or something? She's like, no, no, I'm not taking any medicine. I gave that up. And the doctor never even, even remembers that she became a vegan. 
It's always a surprise to him. You're doing so great. What are you doing? Wow. She's like, I told you like a hundred times. I don't need animal <laughs> products anymore. So, you know, these results are real. These things are, are real. And I, I think a lot of the reason why there aren't more people who are vegans or vegetarians is because they just don't know. They don't make the connection. Mm. And everything is presented here. I mean, I, I can't speak for Europe or the UK, but in the, in the United States, everything is presented as a, as a pill or like a one thing that'll change your life. And that's what people do because they're lazy. They don't, they don't realize that, you know, all you have to do is just change what you're doing. And I, I'm convinced that, at this point, I'm convinced that 98% of all the disease that's out there is, is related to your lifestyle. You know, and, and mm. you don't make these connections because no one makes them for you until you start looking. Like, for the longest time, it was okay to smoke, right? Smoking cigarettes mm. was fine, and they, they would and they would try to justify it and say, well, not everybody dies of lung cancer, so it's okay. Or, you know, so-and-so is 98 years old and smokes 10 packs of cigarettes a day. Mm. But in reality, what you're doing is you're taking, you know, something that's foreign to your body, putting it into your body, and making your body consume it. And then your body naturally makes cancer. That's just now how those how it becomes smoke to cancer. I'm not a doctor, but the reality of it is mm. you have a good chance because that foreign thing is in your body. And when you start looking at food that way, when you start to realize that, you know, maybe you're not supposed to eat animals. Maybe there's no benefit to eating animals. Then you start to realize that there are no sick vegans or vegetarians in the hospital with heart disease or with all the mm. cancers that you read about. You know, you start to connect dots. You start to realize that, you know, it's, it has to be the food. And that's where Forks Over Knives really opened my eyes because they had a, a cancer study that I think was done in India where they realized that if you ate plant protein, the cells didn't become cancerous. And the minute you swap the plant protein for the animal protein, you know, they started triggering cancer in cells. I mean, that to me blew my mind. That should be mm. common knowledge. They should tell you that, yeah, these things can bother you. Instead of saying, you know, everything in moderation is fine. You know, that, that sentence right there implies that what you're eating is bad for you, right? Because if it was good for you, yeah. why would you have to eat in moderation? Right? Mm. So all, it's, all of it is, all of it's brainwashing, you know? And it's, it, it's not mm. intentional. It's just, you know, your parents were fed the food that their parents fed them. And... You know, these cultures don't realize that you're not supposed to eat that stuff. And that's how you get populations of people that have specific cancers or specific ailments. And no one catches on until, even when they do studies, no one, no one wants to believe it. Or there's always conflicting reports. Well, you know, it's not always the case like that. No, it's not always the case, but it's mostly the cases, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people don't want to embrace it. Like, I have friends that eat my food, and they go, I can eat this every day. And then the next day, they don't, they don't eat it anymore. You know? All of that for the sake of a hamburger or a hot dog. All this disease, mm. all this worry. That's the other thing, too, that, I mean, I, I can't speak for you, obviously. You're a vegan now. I've been a vegan for, a vegan vegetarian. I mean, sometimes I have cheese, you know, full disclosure. Um, mm. But the thing that I like the most is I unburden myself. I don't worry anymore about my health. Like, I don't worry if I'm eating this, you know, if I'm eating too much red meat, 
if I have too much cholesterol, if I shouldn't have that extra portion. I don't even think about that anymore because everything I'm putting in my body is what my body receives naturally. And that to me is like the best benefit. Not one less thing to worry about. And if it's your health, perfect, you know? Oh, 100%. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Let's, let's turn to the book. Like, I've got a copy here. It's incredible to, it's an incredible book. Um, it just really opened my eyes up to a completely different culture of, of food. I thought, it was, you know, it's amazing that it's out in the world. And uh, as we talked about before we started recording, great to, to see it over here in the UK too. Um, tell me a little bit about the, the journey of, of coming up with the book. What, what got you from the place of your dad saying, do you know what, I think you could sell this to let's put these recipes in a book. You know, what was that process like? Well, my intention was never to write a book, okay? My intention was just to convert the recipes that I grew up with into food that I can eat. Um, and as I did that, you know, uh, every, almost every recipe in my cookbook gives, gives me a memory of a family member or of, a, of an event. And I started thinking, I'm like, you know, I should probably write this stuff down. Like, you know, the first time I tried this or the person that brought the recipe to my house, the first time I had it was my aunt, Josephine. And I, you know, I, I started thinking, I'm like, I should probably just write this down as a short little story about how I came to it. So, you know, just so I can remember. And if, if my kids are interested in knowing who these people are, it'll be there written down somewhere. Mm. And then I started to realize that I really miss these people. <laughs> so I was, as I <laughs> yeah. was writing it, I was like, you know, I should probably write a book. Um, you know, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional as I'm thinking about all these folks. I should probably write a book just so I can memorialize all these wonderful memories that I have with all these wonderful family mm. members that I have. So that's how it started. So I just, you know, I would pick a recipe. Um, and I would think to myself, you know, how many times have I had this? Where have I had it? And where did it mean something to me? And it all came down to my grandmother and her sisters. So I just started writing this down. And then I was like, you know what? I should probably, if I'm going to do all this writing, I should probably write how they came to the country and what happened and their history. Mm. Because, I mean, it's fascinating to me, but I've heard it a million times. And I don't think people understand the struggles that you go through, like, all these folks in my family were displaced overnight. I mean, it just happened mm. within weeks of another political agenda being done in their country. They had to flee and they had to leave everything. I mean, properties, cars, their whole life. I mean, can you imagine being uprooted immediately, having to run because you're afraid of what may happen to the future of your kids, leaving a country ending up in another country where you don't speak the language. I think, I think my grandfather was my age when he got to the United States. I mean, I'm 50. So can you imagine like at 50, after you've been successful, you have to immediately run, start over again, and somehow make it. I mean, it's, it's a testament to all the immigrants. Mm. I mean, not just my family. I mean, yeah. there, there are people of lesser means that show up with like $20 in their pocket and they have to figure out a way to do it. So, you know, I started thinking about 
I mean, I was a kid when I witnessed all this. I was a child, so it never really registered how how deep a, a trauma it was until I was older, until I started really thinking about it, until I started realizing that, you know, you can have all your stuff taken from you, including family. And I think those stories have to be told, even if they're, mm. you know, even if they're not perfect stories, even if they're not nice stories. I think they have to be told to an extent so that people understand that, you know, we all share and struggle and the struggles are all very, very close. And for my, for, for, for my situation and for my family, the thing that kept everyone together was the food. And to me, it was very important. So what I ended up doing was I just made these stories about the, the dishes and how I remember them and where I was and how they're presented. And it was kind of like therapy for me. And before I knew it, five years had rolled by. <laughs> and I had, you know, I had a couple hundred pages worth of writing. So then I just started to organize it. And, you know, I, I have a knack for writing. I mean, I, I, I can't say that I've always written stories, but communication comes easy to me. Um, so I disorganized it. I saw a couple of other, other cookbooks that I admired. So I kind of shaped mine to look like that format. And then I copyrighted it and I published it. And I, I didn't think, like I didn't publish it going, I'm gonna sell a million copies, this is it. <laughs> I just published it just to see what happened. I put it out there and uh, you know, immediately my family bought it. I expected that. So, so I had some sales in October <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. And then I started to realize that the book kept selling and I'm like, well, I'm out of family members. <laughs> So it can't, it can't still be the family. <laughs> Somebody's buying it. <laughs> and then, uh, and here we are. I mean, you know, the first year, this is a year and a few months now. You know, I've sold more books than I ever thought I would sell. And uh, it's amazing. Like, you're in the UK right now, you know, thousands of miles away, and you have my book in your hand. I mean, to me, that is never going to get old. I mean, that is amazing. Someone someone <laughs> bought my book in Germany. And I was telling my wife, I'm like, someone in Germany <laughs> has my book. It's just so crazy <laughs> to me. You know, it's it's flattering. It's very flattering that uh you know, that that's happened. And it's uh it's amazing to me. Like I, you know, I mean, here I am speaking to you about something that I did with no intentions of any of this Unfolding, Like, it was supposed to be a private thing. I mean, I did publish it, I guess, because I wanted to see my, my grandmother's face out there. Like, I wanted to memorialize her. Yeah. And uh, now it's kind of blossomed into this little book, and it's, you know, been well-received. And, you know, it's funny. I, I don't want to... Uh, like, I've gotten recognition from people, like, other Cubans who are kind of high up on the food chain as far as fame goes. Like I've been, you know, <laughs> I've been recognized by these folks and I'm just a guy in New Jersey who, who wrote a book on my laptop, you know, like I <laughs> didn't expect all of this. And uh, it's, uh, it's humbling and it's also inspiring. Like it's, it's amazing. It's amazing how the world can receive you a certain way. Like like your podcast, I mean, I'm sure that you didn't expect it to be, you know, in the Netherlands, over here, over there. There's people listening to you no. that you've never met. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's an amazing yeah. thing, isn't it? 
Oh, it really is. Yeah, it's it's, it's incredible. Yeah, I, I I I can share to some extent, but uh, the 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 feeling. But yeah, like I can't imagine what it'd be like putting out such kind of personal recollections, things that really that really means so much. It must be just an incredibly powerful thing to be able to share those those memories uh, that are so personal that means so much with, with like you say, people all around the world. What, what an incredible, incredible thing to have been able to have done, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, it's mind-blowing. And, uh, you know, when you get, yeah, you know, I have reviews on my Amazon book. Most of them are positive. Like everything else, there's negative reviews in there. Um, <laughs> the positive ones are from total strangers. And to me, mm. like, I'm blown away. Like, you know, th- these are literally the recipes that we would make in the house. You know, like, it's not, I'm not a chef. I'm just a guy that knows how to cook my cuisine. I mean, I would say I'm probably more experienced, a more experienced cook than most people because I cook all the time. I've been cooking since I was young. Mm. I watched my grandmother cook all my life. So I, I have a little bit more knowledge than most people, but it's nothing that anyone else couldn't do. You know, I mean, all we're doing is following recipes. So... To me, it's amazing when, you know, when I get a positive review from somebody and, and it's it's clearly sincere. Like, you can hear the sincerity. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's really trippy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Has, has the, the reaction from, from fellow kind of Cubans around, around the world, around the US, have you had m- many folks coming, coming to you sort of saying, you know, this, this resonates with me on a particularly deep level? You know, because I could imagine that those that folks who who have lived that culture have been part of some of the same kind of similar experiences, they would feel it on a different level to 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 many others. Have you had much of that kind of response? Yes, I've had that from mostly the older generation, uh, folks. You know, sixty to eighty. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you I don't know if you if you read the beginning of my book. Um, you know, it's just basically a, an introduction in, into my family and, and how I arrived at cooking because I felt the need to kind of like validate where all this is coming from. Like, like I said, I'm not a chef, so I had to explain to people how this all happened. And uh, you know, the stories that I tell in there, they're not all stories. They're references to things that I was told as a kid. And what's interesting is, you know, I, I've had older people tell me, you know, what you wrote in that book. Some of those things were very real. Um, some of those things we experienced mm. as well. And it's weird. Like, I'm, I'm, I didn't live it, so I'm a generation removed from it. And it's nice mm. to know that I was given accurate information by my family. Like, there was no exaggerations. Yeah. You know, things were true. And I've gotten, I've gotten really good really good responses from the older people. The younger people, we all know the stories, but we didn't live them. So, like, as much as I can say yeah. how horrible it was, I didn't, I didn't walk in those shoes. But the people that did walk in the shoes, they tell me it's accurate, and that makes me happy. You know, it's, it, it should be told. Lots of people went through lots of misery and had success, and no one ever hears about it. You only hear about the super horrible mm. stories, right? But... Most people struggle, and the struggle is a real thing, you know. And like you say, there's a when you're a generation or two out, you, you can 
you can perhaps become a bit complacent or take for granted, you know, what life is about, what you, the luxuries that we kind of have now, the things that we're afforded, um, and the and the uh, you know our kind of for, forefathers, our, our our grandmothers, and so on, who who kind of fought to give us those. And I think it's just an incredible um, uh, memoriam of that, if you like, or a, or a, a mantle to pass. To you know, even to younger generation, you know, you you got kids. I've got a very young young um, young boy myself, and um, it, I, I think it's important these stories are shared through families. It, it, it really is. It kind of, it, I think it's all about our identity. You know, who who we kind of are on a deep level. It's um, it, it's very important stuff. So I'll, you know, more more power to you for doing it. I think it's it genuinely incredible. Yeah, no, no, and you got to remember. I mean, we're, we're all very accustomed to taking the opinions of, of quote-unquote experts or people that you see on TV. But the reality of it is that the people that raised you and love you are always going to tell you the truth because they have your best mm. interest in mind. So you have to listen to those folks. To me, that's, to, to me, that's a priority. I want to hear the story from the people who saw me born because that's where I'm going to get the real mm. story, not all the other things that are out there. People trying to convince you of 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 their agenda when all you have to do is speak to your parents or speak to your grandparents and you'll get a good handle on what the world is really like and that that's see that's that's something that in this country we don't revere you know we take our old people and we shove them into nursing homes and we forget about we forget that there are parents that that there are aunts or the people that we grew up with i would never do that to my to my loved ones but it's it's a cultural thing here like they get old enough and boom you put them in a place and you forget mm. about them. And, and that's the source of knowledge that you should be tapping every day. Every question that you have, you should ask your parents or you should ask your grandparents because they lived it. Like the Japanese mm. revere older people. It's a great thing. We should adopt that culture because that's where all of the actual knowledge is. That's where the truth is. And yet we don't, uh, I don't know how that happened, but we don't seem to do it. I, I think that's a mistake. I couldn't agree more, Radar. I think that's a, it's an incredible point. It really is. Um, time's getting away from us, and I want to make sure that we let no, folks know how to how to get a hold of a copy of this book because <laughs> I think it's a very very important one. You know, I've spoken to a lot of chefs, a lot of uh, folks who've written cookbooks, um, and I would I'd probably venture to say that I've not seen a book with as much personal resonance, with as much of that that level of weight to it in terms of its cultural importance. So um, I think I think it's vital that folks, uh, if, they're, if they're in the Vegas bit interested, they go out and get a copy. So where, where can folks do that? Uh, Amazon.com is where the book is sold and on my website, which is veganguano.com. That's V-E-G-A-N, vegan, guano, C-U-B-A-N-O.com. Those two spots... The book is heavy and all that because I'm not a professional writer. I'm not a chef. I'm just a guy that wrote my experiences down and the food I grew up with. And you know, I cook well. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're thinking, <laughs> this is what I tell everybody. Okay, everybody who'll listen. If if you're thinking about it and you're not sure it's because there's a lot of unanswered questions, right? You, you don't think you're going to like the food. Yeah. You don't think you're going to be satisfied by the food. My cookbook, I wrote it, I didn't write it for vegans. I wrote it for people on the fence. So if you want to make that change, mm. if you're looking to better your life, don't take my word for it. 
buy the book or buy any book that will cook vegan food for you and try it out and you'll see that you'll live better and you're not missing a thing. You're not missing a thing. You're compromising your health for the sake of, of eating things that make you unhealthy. You don't have to anymore. So, you know, I'm pretty sure that if you followed some recipes in my book, you'd be sold and you would do it because it's easy and the food is delicious. And I mean, you may not be Cuban, but at least you have a place like you can have a vegan night and enjoy that food, you know, every single time, which, you know, I, I think I think veganism and I think veganism has turned into something that it shouldn't. OK, I'm not the type of vegan that is obnoxious about it. Okay, I do it for my health. Mm. Mm. I think it's easier to promote things when you involve your health in it. Like, I would never convince somebody. You, I don't think you can convince anybody not to eat a cow because the cow feels bad about it. I don't think people care. I think the majority of people don't, it doesn't resonate with them. But if you say, hey, look, you're taking years off your life because you're eating this way. You know, why not improve your health and make it easy and it can be delicious? And you, now you're doing two things. You're, you're saving someone's life, or at least you're, well, I shouldn't say, that sounds grandiose. You're improving someone's life, and you're saving the, the you know, potential animal because you've convinced somebody that it's better for their health to eat this way than to eat other things. Mm. Mm. And that's kind of the basis of the book. Like, if you're not sure, I can show you how to cook it, and you'll be happy with the product. There's no doubt in my mind. I mean, if you follow the recipe, I've made the recipes a million times. They're not hard. Even if you screw them up a little bit, even if you don't put enough salt in, it's going to be head and shoulders above anything else that you would make on your own. And you'll be happy with it. And that way you can make the change. You know, and I think it's important. I think, um, I think agriculturally it's unsustainable with the amount of people that are on the mm. earth. I don't think, I think this is known science. I mean, the reason why rainforests get cut down is to feed cows so that you can slaughter them mm -hmm. and feed the world cows. I mean, but all the food that we use to feed these animals, you can feed the world if you know how to cook well, you know? And yeah. uh, that's how I feel about it. I mean, there's, there's always gonna be people that are very rigid and won't change and that's fine. But, you know, if you can capture a couple of people and show them and change them, I think it makes a big difference. Absolutely, Ray Dow. Th look, thank you so much. Thank you for writing this book. I think it, I think it's incredible. Uh, th thank you for being here today. Uh, I'm sure folks will get so much out of this conversation. I'm going to make sure there's... Um, uh, all the links in the show notes as well, so that folks, if they if they are interested in picking up a copy of the book, find out a little bit more. Just go to the show notes. You can give that a click. You can find out a little bit more and pick up a copy of this incredible book. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. It's uh, it's amazing to me. I mean, it's all. I don't take any of it for granted. It's all so <laughs> amazing to me. <laughs> oh no! Thank thank you so much, Fredo. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you. <laughs>